Well, good morning, everybody. Well, we're four weeks in, and I hate to say that today is the last day of our sermon series, 40 Days to Eternity. If um, this happens to be your first week here, um, the good news is, is we have a booklet that was prepared and your sermon notes are inside, and a lot of information about um, the sermon series is captured here that you can study at your own uh, pace. Um, at any of our campuses, um, you can find these books in the back if you want to grab one now as we continue. Um, through the past three weeks, we've taken our, our time to really study these post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Again, he not only came back to, to prove indeed that he was risen from the dead, but he came back with a purpose to invest in the lives of his disciples because they were going to be the ones that carried his earthly ministry forward. And today's the day that we're going to see that he ascends to heaven to the Father. Um, we're going to do that in just a minute, but let's ask God to lead us as um, we open his word. Father, we just thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the truth that is found there. And Father, as we look back at this historical, real event, we ask you to, to unravel the truth for us um, that impact and should impact the way that we live today. Father, we ask you to just to fill the rooms that we sit in with your spirit and open our eyes and open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. All right, so to get started, you're gonna see in, inside of your book, we have this timeline. Um, we had five appearances back here on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, there was an appearance eight days after to the 11 disciples. Then over the next of a few weeks, we saw four more appearances. Now today, we are going to look at day 40. 40 days after Jesus was resurrected from the dead is God calls him home. He ascends into heaven. And we're going to see that this is more than just a historical, real-life event that took place. We're going to study this in the book of Acts. You've opened up your Bible, turn to the, um, um, to the book of Acts. Let me set a little bit of context um, at the end of here, you'll see that the um, verse reference is here. Luke chapter 24, verse 50, that Jesus gathered them all together and he led them out as far as Bethany and he raised his hands and he blessed them. And what we're gonna see here, here's a picture, uh, a satellite image of Jerusalem. Here are the walled cities of Jerusalem here. Here is the Temple Mount. Here is the summit of the Mount of Olives right here. So obviously it has sides to it. And Bethany is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So as he led them out, they would have left Jerusalem. This area right here is called the Kidron Valley. This area right here, that's the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus cried out to the Father if it was his will to forsake him. And, and they, they would have traveled down through this valley up over the summit of the Mount of Olives out here to Bethany. Scripture says it's about 15 furloughs, so it would have been a little short of a two-mile walk for them to go over to Bethany, for them to be um, gathered, gathered together. And what we do is we pick up this account in the book of Acts. Now we know that Luke, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts. Luke was a physician, he was a doctor, and so he's very fact-oriented. 
Okay, and his job and his responsibility as, as God inspired him to write the book of Acts was to capture the start of the early church through the disciples, right? So this is the, the, the details of how the church got started. And I love what he does in the first verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. He talks about in my former book, he's talking about the, the gospel of Luke, he recorded the things that Jesus began to do, the work he began to do, which means Jesus' work wasn't done after his resurrection and after his ascension, and we're going to see that as a major theme as we go through this this morning. All right, so what we want to do now is take a look at, at um, chapter 4, verse 5. So the book of Acts is, is lays out and gives us evidence that these disciples had finally listened to Jesus, right? They had finally carried forth what he challenged them to do, but we see in the very beginning of book an all-too-familiar question that comes from them. Look at this exchange between the disciples and between Jesus. Start with verse 4 and verse 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is reminding them, I made you a promise. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Now they're in Bethany now. Go to Jerusalem. Go back and you wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Right, I'm about to wrap everything up, you've got to go back and you have to wait. And then look how they respond in verse 6 and 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So Jesus has got to be standing here. I imagine him just shaking his head. Because the disciples are still confusing and mixing up a coming of an, the earthly kingdom, right? Jesus is talking about a future kingdom when Israel is going to be restored where he's going to set up his reign for eternity. And we're going to see that in a second. They're still thinking from an earthly political sense. All right, Jesus, you're back from the dead. Now it's time to get to work. These Romans are oppressing us. We need to beat them down. We need to reestablish Jerusalem as a, as a political force and its, and its um, rightful place in the political scene. And it's time for us to go do this. And look how Jesus responds to them in verse 8. But you will receive the power. So he starts there, but you will. So you're not going to know when the kingdom's coming. You're not going to know what time it is or what year it's going to be. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so he's saying here, guys, listen, I'm wrapping this up. We have spent three and a half years together. We have had an intense 40 days together. You are going to receive power. All these things that I've asked you to do, 
all being fishers of men, um, discipling one another, feeding my sheep, tending my lambs, you are going to receive the power of the Holy Spirit on you, and you are going to do what I've asked you to do, and when you do, you are going to be my witnesses. And the word witness means evidence and proof that as you go about your life, as you go about the things I've called you to do, you are going to be evidence of my work in your life. You're going to be evidence of salvation. You're going to be evidence of my mercy. You're going to be evidence of proof of my faithfulness. This is how you are going to do these things. You will be my witnesses, and I am going to give you the power to go and do these things. Now, I want to pause there for a second because this is an incredibly important verse to every single person that has committed their lives to Christ. This also is a very important verse for our church, for our body. Our mission statement is modeled after this verse. Our beyond these walls efforts that that help guide our investment throughout the world is based on this verse. That we are going to be witnesses. And we remember our mission statement is that we exist to develop followers of Jesus Christ in the south hills of Pittsburgh. That's our Jerusalem. That's our immediate context. In the greater Pittsburgh area, that's our Judea and Samaria. So it's Washington and Robinson and Wilkinsburg and Ross Straver. That's our immediate area, our communities. And it says to the ends of the earth. Right? And that's the rest of the world to us, whether it's in DeBerry, Florida, Mesot, Thailand, um, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, Panama, wherever God takes us, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, being his witnesses, wherever he takes us to go. And we love the word develop because it has two meanings. One means to bring into reality. So for us, as we develop followers of Jesus Christ to bring into reality, that's evangelism. That as we go and we are witnesses in all the avenues and areas in which we live our lives out, is we are a light, we are an example, we are evidence of Christ's work in our lives, which from a spiritual sense is attractive to those that don't know the Lord, and the Lord uses his work through us to bring people to himself, right? Being fishers of men, as Jesus called Peter to do. That is what our responsibility is. The second reason that we love the word develop is because it means to make stronger, right? For those that are, are believers, that we grow in our faith. We grow in our understanding of God's promises to us, of his faithfulness to us. And so it's our responsibility to help each other grow stronger in our faith. Remember last week we talked about feed my sheep, tend my lambs, right? As we come into a relationship with Jesus, we're spiritually immature. We need to be fed. We need to grow. We need to become more like him and understand his word at at a deeper level. And we have to do that as a body with each other. That responsibility is not up to me and Ron, the campus pastors, our pastoral staff. 
every one of us carries that same responsibility as we feed and care for and love one another. We all have a responsibility to develop followers of Jesus Christ. And for us to be able to do that, we have to be growing in five key areas, right? The five essentials. Word, worship, connect, serve, and share. We have to be grounded in God's word because it is there is where we learn about him. It is there that he reveals himself to us. We saw that when Jesus came along with the two followers on the road to Emmaus. They were wondering why Jesus had to suffer. Jesus came along. He revealed God's will to him through his word. Um, and, and Jesus took him back to the word. And, and they what? He revealed himself through the word. And they became excited and compelled to share with others. See, just as we feed ourselves with, with, spirit, with, with nutritional food to keep us going every day, we need to feed ourselves spiritually as well so we're maturing in our walk. We need to worship, not just on Sunday morning, that's an important part of it, but we need to worship God in all areas of our life. We need to worship God when we conduct business, as we do things in an ethical way, with kindness and grace. We need to worship God when we, we, we coach our rec teams. We need to worship God when we're being, in, being a neighbor. It's all areas in our lives that we need to turn over to him and use as a way of worshiping him and being thankful for what he's done for us. We need to be connected in Christian community, right? The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. These 11 disciples, well, 12 disciples at one point, then 11, soon to be 12 again, but they lived life together, challenging one another, crying with one another, exhorting one another, living life together, and we've got to do that as well to navigate this broken and fallen world. We have to serve one another. We talked about God has given us a unique spiritual fingerprint. That he has created us exactly the way that he has made us for the work that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And we saw through the fishing experience that when, when, when we are using his, our, his gifting for his purpose to advance the kingdom, we experience what? Spiritual success, intimacy, and fellowship. And when we're using it for our own good or ignoring it, it leads to what? Disappointment and failure. And then lastly, we've got to share what God's doing in our lives. Just like we saw with those two disciples that ran back from Jerusalem all the way back to, I'm sorry, from Emmaus, all the way back to Jerusalem, that they were so excited what God revealed to them, they could not wait to get back to Jerusalem to share with the disciples and to share with the others what God was doing, right? Who Jesus was, the way he revealed himself, and what it meant to them personally. It said, their hearts burned, is what they said, from understanding God's word. But this is hard work, isn't it? To do these things requires us to take time out of our schedules. It takes us uh, courage to let go of the things that we find our identity in, that we find our purpose in, and that we find meaning in. 
And again, we talked about that last week. It takes sacrifice, right? Picking up our cross every day. Laying down our plans for ourselves and picking up his cross and serving him with all of our lives. So essentially, this is what Jesus is saying. He's wrapping up his earthly ministry. Guys, it's all yours now. The responsibility of spreading my word Spreading the message, how salvation comes through me, my faithfulness and my goodness, my goodness is yours. Tag your it. And look what happens in verse 9, because it's now it's time for him to go. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So it was important that Jesus' earthly ministry came to a definitive close. Because at that point, Jesus was confined by an earthly body, right? And the gospel had to spread. It was gonna, as we saw, it was going to go to Philippi. It was going to go to Ephesus. It was going to go to Rome. It was going to spread all the way through. And Jesus, in a bodily form, couldn't be in all those places orchestrating everything. So God was going to call him home. And this was incredibly important to the disciples, number one, because here's the significance to them. They couldn't any longer have a faith that was reliant on the physical Jesus, right? Their faith had to transfer from the eye to eye, touching the, touching the wounds, touching the side. Their faith had to transition to a faith in Jesus who no longer was bound by time and a human body. They had to now believe in his teaching. They had to believe in what his promises were, not with them sitting down over a meal telling them what to do. It had to be embedded in their heart for them to move out and do what God's called them to be. And this is true with us now as well, isn't it? So the ascension is important for a number of reasons. Number one, it's, a, it, it's a certainly a, a, a historical event, right? It happened. There was a day, 40 days after he was resurrected from the dead, that God called him home in a bodily form. Just as the virgin birth was a historical event. Just as his resurrection from the dead was a historical event. But the ascension to us is way more than just a historical event. There is, there is significant, significant spiritual meaning in the ascension. And for us to carry out this Acts 1-8 command, for us to be witnesses in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, in the greater Pittsburgh area, and throughout the world, the ascension has six truths buried into it that helps us carry out this command of Acts 1.8. We're going to go through those six and apply them to our lives. And we see the first one in verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him 
go into heaven. So the first truth that we see here from the ascension, the, the ascension sets up Jesus' return and his reign. Right, so these guys are, are, are looking up into heaven and these two angels really kind of chide them for standing there. Basically saying, what are you guys standing there looking at? Jesus told you what to do. You got to get back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He has work for you to do. You can't stand here looking up into heaven. He told you he's coming back. And he is going to come back in the same way, in the same fashion as you saw him taken up. And he's not just going to come back for the sake of coming back. He's going to come back with what he's talked about the whole time, which is the what? The restoration of the kingdom of Israel. We see this in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Right? This is what he has promised all along, that Jesus is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back, set up his rule, set up his, his reign, defeat his enemy. The downtrodden people are going to not be oppressed anymore. He is going to be victorious. He is going to set up and defeat his enemy. And that truth that fundamental truth that Jesus wins should impact the way we live our lives today. Let me put it in, in, in today's context for you. All right, any of you guys watching the Penguins? Okay, so there's a hockey series going on. Let's say tomorrow night, game six, you've got something going on. You've got a dinner, you've got a dance recital, you've got something going on. And so you, you're going you're gonna to DVR the Penguins game, and you're going to do everything you can to avoid the score. But you stop to get a pizza on the way home, you walk into Fiori's, and the TV's on, and you see the score, and the Penguins win 7-6 to six in double overtime. You're like, dang it. But you got the pizza, so you go home, and you'll watch the Penguin game anyway, and you're in a third period, 30 seconds left, and the Capitals tie it. Do you get worried? No, because you know the Penguins win. Well, guess what? The same is true in our lives. Right? In the only contest that matters, we know that Jesus wins. So when we get to a place in our lives when we feel like the score is 2 nothing against us or 5 nothing against us or 10 nothing against us, we can push on because we know Jesus is going to win. We don't get all anxious that the power of that promise carries us through all the ups and downs and the twisty turns because we know at one point Jesus is going to come back. He's going to reign and he is going to take us home. That's the first promise that we see through the ascension. Amen? Amen. All right, the second one is that we see that Jesus 
currently and actively intercedes on our behalf. Remember what Luke said in, in 1 verse 1, that the work that Jesus began to do, Jesus is still working, and we're going to see these five things, these five ways that Jesus still works. Um, let me back up. The, the ascension was necessary for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. That's number two. Okay, look at this. In John, in John chapter 14, verse 16 to 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. So the physical presence of Jesus is now gone. He's going to pro he promises to send the Holy Spirit. We saw that on the day of Pentecost. It comes in like a rushing wind. And now we have the Spirit of God living inside of us. The power that talked about in, in verse 8. In this power that lives inside of us, Scripture says right here, is that it's a counselor. Right? That as we go through life, that the Spirit is with us to counsel us through hard times, through decisions. And it's also what? The spirit of truth. That we know as we try to discern God's will for our lives and the steps to take and what school to go to, who should be our spouse and what career path, is that we have the spirit of truth that inside of us that is guiding us through that journey. And Jesus is actively doing that today as someone comes into a personal relationship with them. Let's say somebody does that in this service today. Jesus is going to grant them and give them the fullness of the Holy Spirit living in their lives. That is something that he is actively doing today. That the Spirit just guides us to him if we follow it. All right, that's number two. The third way is that Jesus actively intercedes on our behalf. Scripture says that Jesus serves as our high priest, that, that, that he administers grace, that he administers mercy to us as we live through this life, as we walk along the path, the spiritual journey that we're on. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Now we know with Jesus, he was fully God and he was fully human. And in his humanness, he got tired. He was hungry. He was disappointed. He experienced grief. He experienced temptation, though without sin, he didn't give in to that temptation. So Jesus knows what we've been through. He knows how difficult this life is. He knows the challenges that come with it. So take yourself back to a, uh, a point in your life where you went through a very difficult thing. 
Maybe you lost your job. Maybe a, a friend betrayed you. Maybe you're going through a tough financial situation. And, and you specifically reached out to a person that had experienced that same thing. Right? You felt that you can talk to them because they walked in your shoes. Well, that's what Jesus does serving as our high priest. That he's been in our shoes. That we can go with him as the scripture says in what? In confidence. And in, in, in experiencing his mercy. And experiencing his grace. Because he has been through everything that we've been through. And so we can go to him to find mercy and find grace in the times that we need help and that we need comforted. He's interceding on our behalf right now. All right, fourth is Jesus serves as our advocate currently, right? He serves as our advocate to the Father. So we, we, we know on our spiritual journey, we're going to misstep. Right? We're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to get distracted. We saw that with Peter last week. It's not a matter of when, if we're going to be disobedient. It's when we are going to be disobedient. And when we are, Jesus advocates for us before the Father. Check out this verse. 1 John 1, 9, 2, 2. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is our advocate before the Father. So when I sin, Jesus advocates actively for me before the Father. Let me paint this picture. Think of God as the judge. Okay? I'm the guilty party. I'm the one who sinned against God. Think of Jesus as my defense attorney, right? Defending the guilty party. Now, Jesus' case, if you will, or his work or his portfolio is the price that he paid. It's the betrayal, the mockery, the beating, the crucifixion, the death, and his resurrection. He goes before the Father and saying, Father, here's my case. Yes, he was guilty, but look what I have done. I have already paid the price for the sin that Scott has committed against you. In that price that I paid is enough to satisfy any further judgment. Therefore, he is not guilty. And that's what propitiation means. It's good enough to satisfy God in any further judgment. And here's the beautiful thing about that. Most of you know me. <laughs> I'm going to sin more than one time today. <laughs> And every time that I sin, Jesus goes before the Father. And here's the beautiful picture. 
he doesn't present a new case. He presents the same case. It's like he plays the videotape, the DVD, from the last time he represented me. Saying, Father, here's my same defense, my same death, my same resurrection that satisfied that sin satisfies this sin as well. And not only for me, for all of us, for the whole world. His one death paid the price for everyone that if we confess our sins, we are found not guilty. See, Jesus does not get crucified every time we make a mistake. He's already done that. And he advocates for us every time that we make a misstep. All right, so fifth, Jesus serves as the exalted and glorified head of the church. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now this passage clearly makes an analogy between the body and the church. Does not make an analogy between the church and a building. The church is a living, breathing organism. It's a body. Not four walls that make up this building or Washington or Robinson. And as a body, each one of us as part of that body has a unique part to play. Some of us are fingers, some of us are legs, some of us are torsos, some of us are ears. We all have our part to make the body whole. But this scripture says that Jesus is the head. The head that controls everything, that holds it all together. So Jesus today is not sitting back with his feet up with the remote control waiting for the second coming. He's interceding, he's advocating, and what's he doing? He's leading the church. He is the head of the church. So as we move out and we use our gifting, Jesus is the one that sets our direction. He's the one that gives us ministry opportunities. He is the one that leads us into new communities, into new parts of the world, into individual relationships where we can make disciples of Jesus Christ by being fishers of men, by sharing the gospel, by discipling one another. That that is Jesus that's leading not only us as leadership of the church, but all of us as the body. He is actively doing that today, engaged in his work on the face of the earth. All right, and then lastly, through Jesus' ascension, our homecoming is being prepared. I think we all can agree there's nothing like a homecoming. Whether you've been away for an extended period of time, maybe on a business trip, um, or maybe um, uh, somebody in an extended hospital stay, or uh, uh, going back to a city where you once lived, or welcoming home a family member that's in a service or from college. You know what that feels like. I'm going to get to experience two of those things this week. Right after the second service, I'm going to drive to Atlanta where my oldest daughter lives, and I'm going to get to visit with her, going back to where we lived for seven years, and see friends and family, and reunite with my daughter, and I can't wait. I'm going to drive back on Wednesday, and get on a plane on Thursday, and fly to North Dakota to pick up my other daughter from school, and drive her back. 
And I can't wait for that. 1,400 miles in a car with her, me and her one-on-one. I can't wait for that homecoming. But I'm sure many of you have had experiences like that. But there is a homecoming more sweeter than any of that. And that is Jesus' homecoming to the Father. And Jesus so looked forward to this that he talked about it before his death. I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. After his death and resurrection, remember at Easter we saw Mary Magdalene gripped onto Jesus' legs because she didn't want to lose him to leave again his, from a physical sense. Look what Jesus says. He goes, don't cling to me. For I have yet to ascend to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Can you imagine that homecoming after what Jesus has been through? Living faithfully what God asked him to do, coming home to the Father? We get a little glimpse of this in John chapter 17, verse 4 to 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, his homecoming is a big deal. And it's a big deal to us because as he is there, he is preparing for our homecoming as well. John 14, 2 to 4 In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. We are going to be with Jesus forever on our homecoming. And you know the way to where I am going. See, Jesus now is preparing and awaits for our homecoming to him. And it will be nothing like we have ever experienced. Amen? So as we wrap up this sermon series, let me remind you of four things. That in our lives, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey, Jesus is engaged with us, walking alongside of us, convicting us of our unbelief and our lack of faith when we go sideways, always calling us back into his word, back into fellowship, back into intimacy, where he reveals more and more and more about himself. And as we live in this intimate relationship with him, that our hearts are on fire for him and that we can't help but be compelled to share with others about what Jesus is doing in and through our lives, right? We know that. We saw that on the road to Emmaus. And we also saw is that the disciples were fishing when they shouldn't be, that God has stuff for us to do. He's created us for a purpose, that we are not to stand here looking in the sky waiting for him to come back. I have stuff for you to do. I've given you the gifting to do it. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you to move forward, to take ground for the kingdom, to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to 
greater Pittsburgh area and the South Hills of Pittsburgh and throughout the world. And if you, and if you don't do this in relationship to me and in, 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 in the way that I have laid this out for you in obedience to me, you're going to suffer disappointment and failure. But if you'll use the gifts that I've given you to advance the kingdom, you will have intimacy. You will have fellowship. You will have a a, a life that gives you fruitfulness and spiritual success. And then last week we saw that we're not going to be perfect. We're going to misstep. We're going to be distracted. But the power of the Holy Spirit will pull us back to him. And Jesus is saying, follow me. Follow me, come back. No matter where you've been, how far you went down over the hill, I stand ready to use you. I have a plan for you in building my kingdom. Come back to me. Because we know it's not if we get off track, it is when we get off track. And Jesus is waiting to restore us back to him. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, no matter how far away you are, come back to him because he's got a plan for you in it. And then lastly, today we see that Jesus is still working. We're not in this battle alone. That Jesus is, is sitting there right, waiting for people to accept him as Lord and Savior, to empower them with the Holy Spirit. He is interceding on our behalf that we can go to him in confidence, in times of need for mercy and grace. He's advocating for us for when we do make mistakes. He's going before the Father when we repent and say, they're not guilty. He serves as the head of the church, leading everything that we do, and he's preparing our homecoming for us now. See, these things should impact the way that we live because, guys, that world is a messed up place. The world is broken and fallen. And these are the things that give us hope today, knowing that Jesus wins. He's preparing for our homecoming. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit in us, and he's walking alongside of us throughout the journey till the day he calls us home or the day that he comes back. Amen? Dear Father, we thank you for the truth found in your word. Father, let us be people that not stand around looking up into the sky, waiting for you to come back. That we could be people empowered by your Holy Spirit, living a life of courage, living a life full of passion, Father, just in intimacy with you, living out the life that you have created for us. Help us be people that are devoted to developing followers of Jesus Christ in the South Hills of Pittsburgh, in the greater Pittsburgh area, and throughout the world. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.